You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bo's Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, where it is wet and soggy and a typical Pacific Northwest winter day where it's already getting dark and it's raining cats and dogs and it's lots of puddles and mushy outside and it's cold and chilly and it's just a great day to be inside listening to or watching the Bose Nose Show, whether you're listening through KRBN Internet Radio and Blog Talk Radio or on your phone, or if you're watching on Facebook Live, it's, you know, anything's better than being out in that mess that's out there right now. But it's a good thing because we're definitely behind on precipitation for the water year, so I'm always happy when we, we're seeing rain this time of year because we all know it happens when we don't get enough rain. And uh, and we get just the right wind conditions uh, and and weather conditions, we can have the the uh, horrible wire, wildfires we had on September eighth uh, of this year, and uh, it was you know just terrible. And it just seems like I can't seem to convince my fellow commissioners not to add insult to injury to those fire victims from the Holly Farm fire. Uh, A good portion of those fire victims, and, you know, I've posted some photos in the past of of the homes destroyed are in the floodplain, quite a few of them, and uh, it seems like we can't not bend to the will of the you know, anti-development environmentalists, you know, some of them, you know, I know for a fact actually live out in rural Lane County. I guess they got theirs, but they don't want you to have yours. Uh, Pushing the board to get more and more restrictive with development regulations out in rural areas. My apologies. Um, I usually remember to silence my phone before the show. I forgot this time. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, yeah, student-run radio, what can you say? We're free. No ads. Did you no say we're sp- live? We're live. Yes, we are live. Um, but, you know, I, I can't seem to convince my commissioners to not listen to that anti-development, anti-housing group of people that want us to to, to put restrictions on development that is not about life safety because we already have a floodplain code that's more restrictive than the minimum requirements. We require people to build their houses, their first floor to be one foot above the 100 year flood elevation. 
when all we really have to do is have them have it equal to the 100-year flood elevation. So we're already a foot of freeboard, and this new rule is going to require you to be two feet above the 100-year flood elevation. And I demonstrated to the board uh, with some pro, you know, flood profiles that in many cases, two feet actually puts you over the 500-year flood. And when you're talking floodplain, you're not talking floodway where it's the actual high velocity part of the channel. This is the backwaters that, you know, go over banking or, you know, have very low velocity and can be as little as six inches deep um, that you're building two feet above. So it's kind of hard to say this is a life safety issue. This is just more about making it hard to develop new housing or businesses out in rural Lane County. They tried to make it sound like they were they were doing things that were going to keep this from applying to fire victims. And as I very carefully in yesterday's board meeting, and I've been talking about all along, they weren't doing it successfully. And one of the things they did was they put something in there requiring any fill in the floodplain to have compensating storage excavated on the same parcel of land. There is no exemption for fire victims from that piece of code they wrote. In addition, that piece of code they wrote is not in the model floodplain ordinance from the state. It's not required by FEMA, has nothing to do with life safety. So, bunch of money to do that compensatory storage and in some of these lots that are real small there may not be room to do it which means they're forced to if they can get one do a study from an engineer which costs thousands of dollars to demonstrate there's no rise created by the fill they're doing which isn't a guarantee once they pay the engineer to do that study that's going to come out that way so um you know, thousands of dollars and the time it takes to do the study, and then they got to submit the study and get it approved by the county, the no-rise study, and it's done through a type two land use process, which is an appealable process. So they didn't exempt the fire victims from this piece of code that they brought in because the environmentalists wanted them to, no other juris, no other county in the state has that code. There are some cities that decide to adopt it, Portland being one. <laughs> Funny, and King County is the only other place I know, and that's in Washington up near Seattle. Um, and it's a hugely problematic piece of, of code because it's written so poorly and was kind of rushed through. But it's going to apply to fire victims because there was no exemption for fire victims written in there. So it will cost them time and money to comply with that piece of code in the new ordinance. In addition, they threw something in there that the environmentalists asked for, which was to bring in some language from a Deschutes County floodplain code that talks about the only way you're allowed to develop in the floodplain is if you can demonstrate that there is no other way to build, you know, I think the exact language we use in our in the code is no alternative exists to building in the floodplain. Well, how easy do you think it is for um, 
one of these environmental groups that likes to appeal almost every land use decision we make to appeal a floodplain approval by the county based on the fact that we they felt that the applicant didn't demonstrate well enough that no alternative existed. You know, if they had, you know, a little bit of land on their property that was out of the floodplain, but it just happened to be, you know, a cliff, they're going to try and make people prove they couldn't build on the cliff, you know, or at least make them spend the time in the appeals process trying to disprove the, the this, you know, prove the negative, you know, prove the negative that no alternative exists. And, you know, again, once again, that takes money and time. And there's no exception to that piece of the code for fire victims. Now, the one place they did try and, and, and help fire victims was on the new two feet freeboard requirement, the extra foot of freeboard, which has absolutely nothing to do with life safety. It's all about just jacking up the cost of building in, in the floodplain so hopefully they can discourage it altogether, which is which is the real really the true end goal. To the folks that were advocating for this floodplain ordinance, they would have made it a ban completely for any new construction. Um, and probably would have even chosen to ban reconstruction of, of fire damaged homes in the floodplain. But you know, one of the things people don't understand is just because you're in the 100-year floodplain doesn't necessarily mean you're in danger of being flooded all the time. That's something that happens in a once in 100 chance of happening. You know, it, it's a very small chance. There's a 1% of it chance of it happening in any year. That's kind of the definition of the quote, the 100-year flood. Um, these uh, people you know, want us to add that extra foot. So the board did it, put it in the code. But one of the things they tried to do to help fire victims was they said, we're not going to apply the new freeboard requirements for another three years. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but five years after a major fire in, in California near Malibu, of the 500 homes or something they lost down there, only about 10 have been reconstructed. Part of that is just, you know, folks get paralyzed by the whole crisis in general and don't really start the reconstruction process right away. They got to go through all sorts of stages of, of grief to get to the point where they, they can deal rationally with replacing their home. Some of it, some people are old, elderly and may never replace their home. Um, the other part of it is, People have to start into these Byzantine land use laws that are in the state of Oregon. And in a lot of these cases, these are older homes. Uh, their lots were created by a deed sometime in the past. And they got to start at square one in our land use system of they got to prove that that lot that their house was on for the last 50 years was a legal lot under Oregon law. Legal lot verification, an appealable process. So once they finally prove that and get past any appeals that might happen, then they can start into their floodplain approvals. And then after they get all their floodplain approvals, then they can start the building permit process. 
you think maybe it might be more than three years before they get to the point where they're actually getting a building permit and this new one foot freeboard jacks up the cost of their house. So, you know, I, I walked the board through all those things, how they're going to cost fire victims that have their house destroyed, but they happen to be within the floodplain in the Mackenzie River or even the Blue River, which most of the town of Blue River is in floodplain, are going to have to adhere to these new rules, and it's going to cost them time and money when all they want to do is get their house reconstructed and get back in and get their lives back to normal. And all the businesses around there want is for people to get back in their houses so they can have customers again. And the businesses want to get their businesses rebuilt so they can get their lives back to normal. But our board voted three to two to add that extra time and costs to everyone businesses and homeowners that are reconstructing after the holiday farm fire that just happened to be in a floodplain, which includes almost every lot in the town of Blue River. Now, mind you, our board chair voted yes for that, and she justified her vote on the fact that we're going to have people build back better. So all you folks out there that are, you know, going to have to go through this new process as it's delaying your home, I want you to know that your representative, East Lane County Commissioner and our current board chair, voted for you to have to go through those extra steps. <sighs> it just amazes me. I mean, they tried to to you know, lay it on staff and go, staff is recommending approval of this. Well, staff, our current department head, verified, I mean, a direct question from Vice Chair Joe Burney. He asked, is Commissioner Bozovich correct that this will cost extra time and money for fire victims? And he started to hem and haw, but eventually he had to say, yes, it will. Try to downplay how much or how you know anything like that, but the 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 thing is is back in 2010, our current department head was just an associate planner at that time, and he wrote a very restrictive set of rules that were going to require 200 foot buffer from any waterway that got totally shot down by our board. He's part of the problem. You know, the deep state doesn't just exist in Washington, D.C. I don't, I, I not only have to deal with, you know, board members that are in the pocket of environmentalists, I have staff that are basically saying, oh, everything's fine. They tried to tell the board two weeks ago that they, they had done a good job of exempting fire victims. I had to go back and walk people through why they didn't. But our staff was trying to, to tell the board they did exempt fire victims when they did not. So I, I'm not happy about that passing the board, if you can't tell. And 
anybody listening that is concerned about that, because this is not going to just affect the fire victims. If you have a piece of property in a floodplain somewhere in Lane County, which there's a lot of lots in floodplain, doesn't mean necessarily you're in danger of being flooded every year, or that if you do get flooded, it's actually going to cause any damage. It might flood your yard, but not your house because you're elevated one foot above the 100-year flood. It's going to add problems for you if you want to put an addition on your house, if you have to reconstruct your house, or if you have a lot that you want to put a new house on. This is going to be a problem everywhere in Lane County, and it has absolutely nothing to do with either environmental protection or life safety because adding that extra foot of fill actually requires more disturbance of ground. To get the, the house a foot higher, you have to put in more dirt. And that extra fill is going to require, under this new com compensating storage rule, disturbing more ground to excavate out to get the, quote, storage, which means you're disturbing native or existing vegetation. And it's got to be connected to the floodplain, so naturally it's in close to the streams. So you're requiring, you know, this law is requiring additional vegetation disturbance next to streams. That's not environmentally sensitive. This has absolutely nothing to do with environment and has everything to do with trying to make it more restrictive to build in rural areas. Because as far as some of these folks are concerned, the only place you should be living is in a high rise somewhere in the middle of the city and taking the bus everywhere. Because, you know, all, all you all folks that live out in the country are, are you know, have too big of a carbon footprint or whatever. Yeah, it, it just boggles me that, you know, they can't let people have freedom. They're so wanting to dictate everything from the top down, planning. And they do it in the name of, oh, we're going to, we're protecting the river. How does requiring extra excavation next to the river protect it? So I don't know. Well, we got lots to talk about here on the Bo's Nose Show, not just fire and, and floods. We've we've got, you know, pandemics to talk about and uh, housing crisis. And we even have income taxes to talk about today on the Bo's Nose Show. But we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about on the Bo's Nose Show. All you have to do is give us a call. 646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the conversation on the Bo's Nose Show. And uh, we'll have a conversation because that's always a little bit more interesting, interesting to me, kind of regurgitating some of what's been going on at the board level, what's going on in local politics, maybe state politics. Um, having a conversation usually is, is a little bit more interesting. So, I have to uh, talk about COVID a little bit. Uh, I'm sure people are just sick and tired of hearing about COVID. They're done with it. Um, but, you know, our governor, first she did the two-week freeze, you know, without consulting any counties. And at the same time, then she put out this economic money and told the counties we were going to be in charge of distributing it and never warned us about it. 
and told us we had to get it done before the end of the year. Um, she just isn't a very good team player or communicator between the state and the counties. Um, and on top of that, then she comes back and decides that she's going to do these, this risk matrix thing and decide what level counties are going to be in. Never asked us about how those levels are assigned. And uh, based on your risk level, she had certain restrictions she was going to place on each county on a county-by-county county basis. Now, mind you, Lane County is a pretty big damn county and we're not homogeneous and they're shutting down restaurants in Florence and in Oak Ridge based on a high case count per hundred thousand when the majority of those cases are from Eugene Springfield zip codes so these two communities that are separated by 50 miles from the Eugene Springfield area suffer because of the high case counts coming out of Eugene and Springfield. Where's the fairness and, and, the, and the scientific decision-making behind that? Now, let alone the scientific decision-making that part of a restriction shut down all gyms and fitness centers when we haven't had a single outbreak tied to a gym or a fitness center. Now, we've had a hell of a lot of outbreaks tied to home gatherings, but she went ahead and closed down indoor dining and restaurants, which is going to create a bunch of people getting carryout food and having home gatherings. Have you heard of a case of COVID that was between customers in a restaurant? a customer of a restaurant that picked it up in a restaurant. I've heard of some workers in the back maybe having some COVID cases turn up because they were getting tested, but I haven't really, and they got them outside of the restaurant. You know, so yeah, it's where's the science in that restriction? And then, you know, making the restrictions based on cases per 100,000 has nothing, you know, doesn't reflect whether one county is doing a better job of testing than another. Um, it, it doesn't reflect for instance, maybe the location of a university in a county. Um, and uh, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the levels were set at a place where Lane County is well below the statewide averages in the two metrics that she's measuring. And we have been from the beginning where the state average is, is you know, 400 cases per 100,000 and we're around 300 or something like that. Uh, the, the positivity rate for testing the average of the state is in 7%. We're down around three and a half, you know, well below the statewide average, but we're rated extreme, the highest level of risk. We're below the average in the state and we're at the highest risk level. Something's not right with that picture. You'd think we'd be moderate, maybe, or something, seeing we're so far below the statewide averages. No, but we're extreme. In fact, just about the entire state's extreme. So you kind of wonder, you know, who chose those levels? And, and why? Why make these decisions to close things down? And why not trust people to do the right thing? 
You know, the folks that want to build a house on their property are going to build it in a way that it's not going to flood every time it rains. Why don't they let people decide whether it's risky to go into a restaurant? Yet, on another side of things, it seems like we're not, you know, if, if, we're, if COVID is, you know, is, needs to be slowed down, prevented, turned back from the case growth and from the hospitalization rates, the one place where it is, creates the most hospitalizations and the most deaths is in our elderly population. The older you are, the higher your mortality rate. It's been a given from the first days and and all of our our nine month almost ten months of experience with COVID now have shown the older you are, the more deadly. The more likely you are to be hospitalized, the more likely you're to end up in an ICU, the more likely you're to end up on a ventilator. So you would think that instead of shutting gyms down where there haven't been outbreaks, we might be doing something really concentrated effort to protect people in nursing homes, elderly folks, and folks that are maybe in long-term care because of their, they, they're recovering from something and have compromised immune systems or they, you know, in poor health for some reason. Maybe they're recovering from a heart attack. Another comorbidity issue for COVID is heart disease. So you think we concentrate on that a bit more. Yet, here in Lane County, unless there was an ongoing outbreak at a facility, the testing required by the state for staff at a, at a nursing home where elderly patients are was to have 25% of the staff tested every week. In other words, you would get tested once every four weeks as a staff person. Now, at the same time, we haven't had a single death of a person under 30 in Lane County. Now, what do you suppose the average age of a college student is? Testing in colleges has been widespread. I'm aware of a couple college students that came home over Thanksgiving from OSU and UO that both told their parents they had been tested multiple times during the last semester or quarter. And I'm also aware that the University of Oregon football team and the Oregon State football team, every member of that team gets tested once a week. They're all under 30. But the people that are in contact with elderly folks with that high mortality and high hospitalization rate, they only get tested once every four weeks. If the governor were serious and being driven by science, she would have figured out a way to take those two state university systems and divert some of the testing resources away from them, whether they came from the Pac-12 for the football teams or not, the stuff being used for the rest of the students didn't come from the Pac-12. Not to mention, she probably has the power to even commandeer the Pac-12 tests. 
But why not take some of that testing capability and move it over and test every employee of a nursing home or long-term care facility every week? You know, and maybe, just maybe think about, is the university necessary even to stay open? Should maybe we have closed the universities and, and, you know, left our grade schools open instead? The science would probably tell you so. But we're not we're not driving by science when it comes to COVID. I mean, we constantly hear use science, use science in all your decision making. You know, I wear my mask, I wash my hands, I'm going to get the vaccine when it's available to me. I'm sure that probably makes a lot of people cringe, but um, I believe it's safe and effective, and I'm going to get it because I don't want COVID, and I don't want to spread it to somebody else that particularly in my peer group over 60 that could could probably die from it, including my wife who has asthma, which is a complicating factor for COVID. So, um, you know, it's a serious disease. We need to make science-based decisions when trying to prevent its spread. And our governor right now is not using science. Neither is OHA very well. And they're causing a lot of economic distress to people for no reason. At the same time, they're putting people at risk in other ways because of their refusal to really concentrate on where the help is needed in protecting our most vulnerable population. I mean, we should be on a war footing when it comes to nursing homes. We seem to be able to test every football player of a bunch of 20-something. I'm not the only one that forgot to to mute their phone. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, but we're not testing our, our nursing home folks until there's an outbreak. And then once there's an outbreak, they test them twice a week. But, you know, that seems like you're closing the barn door after the horses are all out. So, um I I just don't get it. I don't feel like we're doing COVID in a very scientific way in this state. And it's causing a lot of harm. Well, something to, I was going to throw a comment in. Unfortunately, I can't uh, go through and cue these things, but here's what I was trying to do. You pointed me with science. (laughs) Sorry. Science. Yes. Um, yeah, it's kind of like math. Uh, you know, math and science, it really upsets me when people misuse either. And particularly in some of the arguments around the floodplain, again, people were getting extremely unscientific about it. But, you know, and I, mind you, when we're talking floodplain, I was a registered professional engineer that actually did floodplain studies where my license was at risk for the information I was generating. I understand how how flood hydrographs work, how floods progress down a river channel, you know, all the various issues around storage in the floodplain and and what a floodway is versus a floodplain. 
yet, you know, planning staff that has no engineering background, no hydrology or hydraulics background, were basically telling the board, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, you should approve it, and they did. So I, I just, it, uh, science. But maybe we should talk about something less controversial. Housing crisis, no. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, we also passed an affordable housing plan on a 4-1 vote where I voted against it. And my vote was mostly as a protest vote because once again, you know, we they had a bunch of people come together um, and uh, were wanting to talk about housing and how we're going to solve the housing problems without um, getting to the point where they, uh, you know, really were going to do anything other than government-run actions to try and build more housing or, or whatever. Nothing about removing barriers from the private sector in building housing. But I think, uh, Robin, do we have someone on the line that wants to get in on the conversation here? Yeah, we have Mike coming on here as soon as the thing clicks over. So, Mike, you're on with uh, Commissioner Bozovich. Hey, Mike. Oh, Mike dropped off. I think we just lost him. Mike, go ahead and give us a call back. We'll put you right give through. A call back. We'll get you right up. That's too bad. Um, but yeah, it's you know we have we have a housing crisis here, and one of the things they presented was a slide that showed how we're underbuilding housing compared to the number of new residents coming into Lane County over the last ten years. And based on those graphs, we need to increase the number of housing units per year by at least 750 to, to get back to where we're just keeping pace with, with the new households coming in. And uh, it was, you know, we never built 750 units of, of publicly constructed housing in a year ever in Lane County. It's not gonna happen unless the private sector is involved. There is nothing in any of the recommendations about, let's see if we can lower the fees. Let's see if we can get rid of system development charges. Let's see if we can reduce the amount of requirements that we're requiring people to build. Let's see if we can provide more flexibility in our zoning codes to do alternate styles of housing like townhomes and zero lot lines and ADUs and whatever else. Um, let's see if we can do things that will speed up the permitting process, you know, and, and, you know, removing all those barriers that we keep, we built up over the last 50 years to make housing more expensive in this, in this state and in this county. None of that was in the recommendations. The closest they got was a recommendation to try and encourage people to move into the building trades by working with the community college, which again was a government, you know, involved, you know, resolution to trying to stimulate people moving into the trades. And I kind of pointed out, it's kind of like you got this, you know, only have to watch KZI news for about 10 minutes before they run one of their skilled to work spots of trying to encourage people to go into the trades and how they're working with the trade, all sorts of building trades folks to, to 
try and encourage people to get into the building trades. So it's not like there's not already efforts out there, but there is nothing in there that was talking about eliminating barriers to building affordable housing for the private sector. It was more about, let's look at what land is already under government ownership that we might be able to build government housing on. And then let's look to see if the government can buy more land to build government housing on. And we all know that government is so efficient when we build things that it comes in at such a lower cost than the private sector. Tongue firmly planted in cheek. Um, There's no way. We do that. And then the the secondary thing they started proposing was new taxes or fees, like excise taxes on on building permits or new transient room taxes go into funds to stimulate affordable housing construction or to buy some of these properties or pay the capital costs of some of these projects. Um, And it's like, oh, great. Now we're going to create a whole nother bureaucracy around collecting that new tax and then distributing it back out, you know, a bunch of new government employees uh, with their PERS and everything else on top of that. And, you know, we'll, we might be able to get $1 worth of uh, construction built for every $2 of tax we collect. Um, you know, that's real efficient. So, you know, it's just, it was a typical government plan to use government to try and solve a problem instead of going, why aren't we building enough houses now? Why is the market so restricted and housing costs so much? Why aren't people investing in building houses? And ask some of those questions. Maybe it's because our state passed a rent control bill statewide think maybe some of the apartment builders and people that want to, to, to build rental housing might be thinking about, gosh, all they have to do is tweak that now to really restrict rent growth increases, and I may never make my money back from my investment. You know that multifamily building permits dropped by 60% year over year after that passed in the Portland area? No cause and effect there think we might maybe think about getting rid of rent control. Think maybe doing things like adding an extra foot of freeboard to housing. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Because every little regulation we add is one more piece that makes a house unaffordable for somebody. Once again, Here we are. Government knows best. We're going to fix it for everybody. We're going to make things affordable through government because government's so affordable. Ah, Speaking of affordable government, last year, the city of Eugene, in its wisdom, the city council, in a very quick vote without a whole lot of fanfare up front, passed a new income tax with an emergency clause on the bill so that it couldn't be referred out to the voters to support more, you know, hiring more cops, which I'm all for hiring more cops. But 
what they did was they passed this income tax, not on people that live in the city, but on the businesses and their employees that, that work in the city. And the city is trying in their interpretation of this tax to get businesses to collect it on people that don't even work within the city limits. And I'll give a couple examples that I'm aware of right now. I understand that they are asking Springfield firefighters, because there's now a combined, quote, Eugene Springfield fire, you know, they, they combine the, the two fire systems, but there's still people that are Springfield firefighters. They have a different union even. They never come into Eugene except for if they're doing, you know, cross backup over the over the divide. But quite often they, you know, never step foot in Eugene. And they're, you know, a lot of them don't live in Eugene and they don't work in Eugene. But the city wants them to pay the income tax and have it withheld from their paychecks. Now, at the same time, there are businesses in Eugene like contractors and repair businesses where a lot of their clientele aren't in the city of Eugene. And their repair guys or their electricians or their carpenters or whatever do a lot of their work outside of the city of Eugene city limits. And they're asking those folks to pay the income tax. Now, at best, I think they could probably justify a prorated income tax maybe for the hour a day they report and come back in from their job or, you know, if they can track by their time cards, what percentage of their time is spent working on jobs in the city of Eugene versus working on jobs outside of the city of Eugene. Um, but the city's trying to make this grab and they're even getting me. Now, mind you, I am not an employee of Lane County. I am an elected official that's compensated under the Home Rule Charter of Lane County. In that Home Rule Charter, nothing in the description of the duties of a county commissioner says those duties need to be performed within the city limits of Eugene. In fact, traditionally, I spend very little time in the city. Most of my districts outside the city limits, and I live outside the city limits. I get up in the morning at six in the morning. I open up my iPad. I check my county email. I'm doing that from my residence outside city limits. I come home in the evening. I open up my iPad. I start reading board materials for the next board meeting or prepping for some other meeting. I'm doing that from my home. In fact, I take, I do phone calls from here. I do meetings out here. I do meetings in other cities where I go, you know, meet somebody at, at coffee roasters in Florence or, you know, at Robbie's Window Box Cafe here in Bonita. All of it outside city limits. So one of the things I'm doing is there's no requirement for me to even have an office at the county office building. In fact, there's nothing in charter that says the county is supposed to supply me an office. 
So I informed staff when that passed that I was going to be leaving my office so I wouldn't have to pay the, the tax. And a memo came around informing folks that they were going to start doing the withholding from the county. And I wrote back and said, you can't do that. I'm moving out of my office. I'm no longer going to have a presence within the city of Eugene. I do not derive my income from within the city of Eugene. You cannot withhold that tax. Well, they kind of forwarded that over to the city and the city said, no, we believe that we, we're, we're perfectly justified. Well, we're going to come to a loggerheads about that because I've, I've engaged an attorney and uh, we'll find out if they think that's really true or not. Um, but uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of other people watching my, my uh, battle with the city over their, their income tax, which, by the way, is taxation completely without representation for me because I can't vote for anyone on the city council that passed that tax or the mayor. I have no standing in trying to change that. And if it was referred out to the voters, I wouldn't be allowed to vote on it because I'm not a resident of the city. I'm not a voting Eugene citizen. But they want to tax me because Lane County has a building in the city of Eugene, and that's where our checks are issued from. I'm sorry. Since COVID started, I have, I have hardly stepped my foot inside the city limits. In fact, I've been there more recently just cleaning out my office and moving and closing it down in the last week than I have in the whole year, probably. And even when it was normal conditions, I only really went in town mostly on days when I had meetings in Harris Hall. So maybe 15 to 20 hours a month was spent in city limits and the rest of my, my duties I performed from my house or outside city limits. And I can guarantee you, I work way more than 40 hours a week. So there may be a small portion they can make, lay claim to, but they cannot lay claim to income tax on my entire income. And we're going to end up having a little discussion about that. We'll see if they, you know, they cave to my attorney's letter and whether they force us to actually take legal action in a court. Um, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot of other people wondering, hey, I, I, I work for, you know, such and such construction company or so-and-so electric and or so-and-so heating. And I spend most of my time out in the county or over in Springfield or some other jurisdiction. Why should they be allowed to tax my income? Just because my I, I drive in and pick up my work tickets in the morning inside city limits. You know, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I have a feeling it's really a civil rights issue of, of, of you know, taking a property without justification, without a jurisdiction or authority. Because my income's my property. So we'll find out about that. But I guess Mike never called back in, Robin. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. But, you know, Mike, if you're still listening, you know, give us a call. 
Yeah. You can talk about what we're talking about or what's on your mind. Yep. Still got about eight minutes left in the show here. And so, you know, Robin, you're you're one of those people that also can't vote for anybody that passed this tax, but you're going to be paying it because you, you work in the city of Eugene but live in Springfield. Does it make you happy? Oh, I am so happy. I just I can't express myself. <laughs> you know what really kills me, particularly about the county employees, you know, that live outside the city and work in the city that they're going to start collecting this tax on. Every time the county has contacted the city about coming to the county building for police protection, they try and make us call the sheriff's department. And we have to explain to them every time that the sheriff is not the first responder to the county building, that we are located within their jurisdiction as the Eugene Police Department. And it, you know, we have to argue with them to get a police response. I, yeah. I, did, I didn't realize you were a consulate. Yeah, I know. I mean, the sheriff supplies um, security to the state courthouse under state law but that's the courthouse not the county office building like when we have you know some protests getting out of hand out front or if we have somebody in our building that's causing the disturbance um, they don't want to respond they think for some reason the sheriff's supposed to respond that's not accurate we're supposed to pay an income tax for those police that they won't respond to the county building on, even though, you know, a lot of our employees live outside city limits. So what benefit are we getting from this tax? Well, you do have this really cool tank type vehicle you can play with. Hey, that cool tank type vehicle we talked about last week or the week before yeah, saves lives. And, and, you know, that's not the city of Eugene. That's the sheriff's. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah. But, you know, they, um, it, it's kind of interesting. I, um, there was a, a call recently where they talked about they put a drone in the building first to, to see if it was safe to enter with the police. I thought, aha, I wonder if that was one of our drones we got from the military. <laughs> was on the news last week um so yeah that 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 military equipment that you know is supposed to be you know being used against protesters is you know and and is you know creating hazards for people and, and causing people to get shot no no it actually prevents people from getting shot <clears throat> we talked about that though um so you know i know I want to go back to COVID for a minute because I want to clarify something because some of the people and also KZI likes to do this. They want to, the, you know, the news is in the business of selling the news. So they want things to look controversial and they kind of take, take some of my comments out of context. I want to make it perfectly clear. I really don't think we need to close down the university of Oregon. And I don't think that it's, a terrible thing that they're testing students and all that. They're actually, the university has been a, a great partner in doing some of the testing, particularly in the early months of, of COVID. 
where they are actually bolstering our testing capacity at the county level with their labs. You know, so they've been a great partner. And it, but what I'm trying to point out is the juxtaposition of decision making in this state, where you know we are issuing a significant amount of testing resources to a population that's not at risk for dying or hospitalization, yet we're not distributing enough testing resource and protection to those long-term care facilities that are licensed through the state, so it's not a county control issue. We, we don't have jurisdiction over those facilities. This is a strictly OHA issue and a state-level issue. Grandma or grandpa gets COVID at the nursing home don't think about your county board of health. Think about your governor and OHA. I um I got a question for you. Sure. Uh, speaking speaking of KEZI and misquoting and everything, we have done this show for over two years, I believe. And has they ever? Well, and. What better way to have direct access to a sitting county commissioner or standing, depending where he happens to be at the time? Sorry. But has anybody ever quoted you from this show? Not that I know of, which is surprising because I, I say a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you got an hour, you know, once a week of, of, of stuff you can use against me if you wanted to. Uh, yeah, and we go back to 2009 when we first started uh, um, Caribbean. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't I wasn't doing it then, but I've been doing the the Bo's Nose Show for quite a while now. So they've got lots of hours of, of footage they could use. But yeah, it, it's surprising sometimes. And you know, they could call in during the show and interview me. That's true. KZI KPNW. Um, yeah. Now KMTR. Yeah. But oh, you know, KPNW, don't listen to. I say KPNW. You know, he has had me on the show, on his show, to talk about things I've I've promoted on the Bose Nose Show. So he, you know, he's read our promo and said, "Hey, why don't you come into our show and talk about that too?" <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, at least KPNW pays attention to some degree, and I've also had Bill on the show and interviewed Bill twice. Um, so. Which were both fun interviews. Yes. Uh, Bill's character is that if you think he's wild and wacky on air, you should meet him off air. Yeah, and the interviews on the Bo's Nose Show, because it's internet radio, were, were a little bit more lively maybe than what he would do over broadcast where the FCC can find him. <laughs> but open invitation to the other uh, stations around, you know, if they want to come on and interview our commissioner. Yep. Yep, anytime. Anywhere. Yeah. They also just have to be willing to answer questions. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it was interesting because, you know, they kind of took a clip of me yesterday um, comparing the fact that the football players get tested once a week and we're only testing a quarter of our, our nursing home staff every week. Um, you know, and there's something wrong with that picture. And uh, then they brought up the fact that the UVO football test came from the Pac-12 and uh, I mentioned that, you know, the, the UVO system's under state control, and uh, the governor could 
you know, has has the power to commandeer that stuff. And they kind of reworded that to say the governor might have the power. And it's like, no, she does. <laughs> yeah. I'm still wondering where she's getting her information um, about the, like you brought up earlier about the other areas. And also it fluctuates more than the, flu- than the stark market market does. And that's, what's really interesting to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it also, the, some of the, the the economic shutdowns of businesses, if you look at state by state where there's been different handling of that, like where they haven't shut businesses down, there is very little difference if you can find two states that are comparable in, in urbanization and, and um, population densities. There's almost non-statistical difference in caseloads and hospitalizations. So there's really very little good science that this this economic shutdown is doing anything to prevent the spread. Yeah, if anything, I think it's increasing it. Yeah, it's it's creating this fatigue where people decide they're going to get together no matter what, and usually it involves alcohol, which means people do stupid things like sit around in a small room for hours laughing, joking, talking, dancing, who knows what else. And then they repeat that activity in multiple groups. So there's, you know, multiple exposures. And that's how we're seeing a lot of the transmission now is in these private gatherings. Yet, you know, if we had restaurants open and people could get together and, you know, in a place where they probably have to drive home, so they're drinking responsibility, responsibly they're probably a whole lot lot better ventilation almost almost every restaurant has a kitchen which means it probably has a lot of ventilation because you have to draw air into a kitchen so you don't end up basically choking your your guests out with grease smoke and everything else um and they turn the air over at a fairly usually a much higher rate than your home ever will yeah. Add to that, have you ever done dishes in a restaurant or worked in a restaurant kitchen and realized how hot and sterile their dishwashers are? Oh, yeah. 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 And they use industrial grade soap, you know, that, that, in those dishwashers and, and the temps on them are just outrageous. So you're absolutely sterilizing the dishes that you're getting your food on and the silver you're using, the glassware, everything else. And in general, you know, unless you're at some family style restaurant of some kind, you're not sharing a serving spoon. You you get served your serving, you know, you brought, get brought your 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 fish and chips or you know, your steak and, and potato on it on your own individual plate and you never really share utensils with anybody. You know, whereas, you know, home gatherings, you know, how many times is there a popcorn bowl everybody reaches into or a, uh, you know, something where everybody touches the serving spoon? Well, something I want to say on that before we go off air, one of the unintended consequences of the recent shutdown, um, my sister, her son is dying. He has ALS. And because of the, the shutdown, 
she is not allowed to hug him. They could do suits or body condoms or something, but you know when you have when you have a uh, sibling like that, and because of COVID, you're not even allowed to. You can wave at him through a sheet of glass. Yeah, and you know, some of that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, some of the decision making they're making around socialization of some of these patients, particularly ones that are. Um, end of life like that, um, that, that's, that just seems like, you know, take that person's temperature, you, you, you do the usual questionnaire over possible COVID symptoms, um, and trust that the, that person coming to visit doesn't want to give, you know, accelerate their loved one's death, you know, by giving them COVID. So they've kept themselves pretty well protected. Um, but yeah, how, how do you, how do you just disconnect people from their from somebody that's end of life like that? Yeah, well, we're about out of time for the Bo's Nose Show here. In fact, we kind of ran over a bit, and uh, we'll be back next week. Even though it's Christmas week, um, I'm scheduling a show right now, um, and I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about because I, some of this tax stuff is going to start coming to a head in the next week. Uh, and there may be some more repercussions around COVID. In fact, I am attending a rally on Monday for small gym owners uh, asking to have at least to be separated from the large gyms and treated differently under the, the COVID restrictions. Um, so we'll see. We'll talk to you next week here on the Bose No Show, coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Thanks for listening and have a great week. <laughs>